Um, I'm going to even let you participate in some stuff because uh, we'll see what happens. Now, remember, the uh, the format is we're doing uh, just kind of over our time together. Our, our goal is to do the prodigal son, the paralyzed sinner, the perfect storm, the pitiful stranger, the pious soldier. And so I think I'm going to say pious soldier for Sunday. Um, pious soldier or pitiful stranger uh, may be uh, saved for Sunday. I'll see and I may even uh, opt for a vote if you want to move one of those up uh, in the sequence. So, uh, but we're going to uh, pick up where we left off um, yesterday evening or last evening uh, with the prodigal son. And uh, But before we do that, let's pray. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful to you for every opportunity to break bread with your people. I thank you for this dear family, these people who let me live in their homes to bounce their children on my knee, to ride in the front seats of their van, to feed me at their tables, to share with me the things that are happening in the lives of their children uh, who love on me like a brother who come in and just model the, the beauty uh, of, of Christian family. You, Lord God, as you watch us move among each other, you would not think I was a visitor. The, the spirit of hospitality runs deep in this place. And I pray, oh God, that you would just continue to deeply and richly bless uh, every person, from the person who just hands me the mic to others who just simply speak to me in the hall, uh, to even those who hand me turkey bacon. Lord God, uh, no matter what role they play in just showing hospitality and love, would you just bless these people? I pray, oh God, for your blessing on those who come uh, just with an open plate to hear your word, who may not know me from Adam, um, uh, but are willing to hear what you have to say, because I am not the centerpiece, you are. Uh, so Lord God, would you please uh, open all of our hearts would you please even instruct me? Lord God, I look forward to how you will open my eyes afresh to things that I didn't even see during my time of preparation uh, because, Lord God, you are the central character of every story. And uh, would you now teach even the teacher and especially cause our hearts to be refreshly acquainted and won back to you um, as we walk through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Just by a show of hands, if I talk too fast for you to really capture the content, would you just raise your hand if I talk too fast? Thank you. Thank you. I need that. I need that. I need that. Um, it just helps me to know where I need to pump the brakes or whatever, because, you know, spe- you know, completion of the message uh, is not the goal. It's comprehension. Right. It's, it's being able to capture the material. And so if I talk too fast, please, by all means, like like I think we had someone who gave me kind of like a, 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 there was something that had never happened in the entirety of all my preaching. The last time I was here, someone actually asked me a question Remember my message. Remember that, Xavier, you you reminded me of that. Uh, are you here? today the person who asked me a question uh three years ago are you here she's not okay okay um but that's okay but listen listen i mean so she's a standard bearer and uh so so even if it's not a question or if it's just a need to slow down would you do that i value being able to really uh capture uh the content more than I do being able to complete my, my outline. My, I don't cherish my outline. I, I cherish uh, us being able to grow together in the gospel. So um, please help me serve you better by giving me that feedback, even in the moment. And it also, so in much the same spirit that I don't want to go too long, because if you're annoyed, uh, then that's going to be counterproductive to you being able to hear it as well. So I'm open to both of those pieces of real time feedback. This is we're imagine, if you will, not that we're in a church and I'm standing up front as a lecturer. Imagine, if you will, we're sitting around the dinner table and, uh, you know, and I'm just kind of like the person who's designated to, to pass the plate. 
And if I skip over you, let me know. Hey, man, I didn't get any of that sausage uh, or whatever it is that we're we're passing out here or pork rinds or chicharrones, I think, from yesterday. All right. So with that being the case, we left off um, uh, in our time with looking at uh, there were three big ideas that we had covered so far in looking at the prodigal son uh, in Luke chapter 15. Uh, the title of the message was the lost cause. And I made the statement that every one of us is somewhere on the prodigal spectrum. Right. The moment that my fellowship with the father is not perfect, I am on some trajectory of drifting. And even if I've never been fully prodigal, so to speak, there are times in my life where I feel closer to the Lord than I do at others. And um, and so there was some very clear indicators. And so here they are to get us back to where we we stopped last night. Uh, In the first few verses, we said that the prodigal, including myself, can at times have a habit of dying to the savior rather than to the self and to sin. And those and that failure to do so causes me to drift from the father's fellowship, wanting things that are rightfully mine, but at the wrong time, wanting things that are at the rightfully mine, but on the wrong terms. We mentioned um, that distance from fellowship also deteriorates decision making quality. When I am at distance from fellowship with the father, the voice of the Holy Spirit is being actively muted and the world's noise becomes louder and the world's offers become more attractive. We said that depraved ideas become more abundant when God's ideal is abandoned. It was God's ideal for the, the, the son to be in full fellowship with the father. Uh, but the son wanted distance. And so when that uh, when the God's ideal or the father's ideal was abandoned, then depraved ideas became more abundant. And the apex, the, the height of depraved ideas was was modeled through this loss of security, identity and dignity. Right. Because the prodigal son began thinking about doing something that was unspeakable culturally and even spiritually. Um, Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse nine, says something that we're all familiar with the verse. It says that the heart is desperately wicked above all things, rhetorically speaking, who can know it. In other words, that there are things in our hearts that we wouldn't even recognize ourselves if someone said to us, you're going to do this or that. Well, have you I, I, I pray that no one in this room has ever experienced this. But if you have, I know I hope you now know what the verse is talking about. I believe that the prodigal son has experienced the full thrust of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. He has seen himself do things that are desperately wicked and he would have never thought to do that. But that no one wakes up saying they want to do that. It comes as a part of a gradual and slow, subtle drift from fellowship with the father, abandoning God's ideal. And then we turn the corner. We see the prodigal son uh, coming to a place of repentance. We talked about authentic repentance. I, this was a great reminder for me because I love to think of repentance as somehow being just, okay, I'm pinched by my sin. I feel sorry about my sin um, and I'm going to try to stop doing that. And if we've ever had to repent from the same thing more than once, we know that repentance isn't quite so simple. 
not true, complete repentance. And it doesn't mean that we can't repent multiple times. I'm not going to suggest that because we've had to fight a particular sin that we've never been genuine in our repentance, because there is a fight that is happening within each one of us. But I I do want to say that one of the ways that we can shore up and, and have an authentic repentance is to do three things have a high level of self-awareness. I am living below the father's will. This was the conversation of the prodigal son. Remember, he said, there are servants in my father's house who, who, who are hired servants. They are below my status that I had who have more than enough bread. And here I am so hungry, I'm ready to get a straw and drink from a trough. Right. And then we had situational awareness. In my current state, I'm not just having a momentary struggle. I'm actually actually perishing. That's that situational awareness. And then sin awareness. I am separated from what truly and fully satisfies. I think this is a great place to park for just a moment and recognize that every one of our sins represents a substitution for something that truly satisfies only in God. Every sin represents an appetite that really does have a satisfaction, but it is uniquely found in the Lord. Um, If you've ever gone to a buffet, perhaps, and eaten all that your stomach could physically hold, but at the end, while you could not eat anymore, you still were hungry. What do I mean by being hungry? You couldn't hold anymore, but you knew that what you had eaten didn't quite hit the spot. But have you ever been thirsty like nobody's business and drank a refreshing cup of something, whether it be water or Sprite, and you were like, ah, that hits the spot. You weren't full, but you were complete. Anybody ever felt that sensation? Being complete? That is what we have available to us in Christ is that each one of our sins seeks to fill us, but they don't necessarily fully satisfy us. And the two can feel in the moment quite the same until we get full and we don't have room for anything else. And then we begin to say things like, well, I've tried Jesus and that didn't work. And that's why. So we're full of this other stuff. So we don't have any room for Christ. We don't have any room for anything that he has to offer. But we do know that what we currently are full of does not satisfy. This is why we are called to be continuously filled with the spirit. And so we've reached kind of our our drop off point from last night's message. Repentance grows out of three righteous realizations. Self-awareness. I'm living below God's will. Uh, situational awareness. If I stay where I am, I'm going to perish in my present state. Sin awareness. And that is I am separated from what truly does satisfy. So then looks look now together freshly at verses 20 through 24. In verses 20 through 24, the Bible says concerning the prodigal situation, he rose and he came to his father. And this is a very staggering and mind blowing message. Uh, a mind-blowing moment in the message. He says in verse 20, he came to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
If you ever get a chance, read a book called Reading the Bible Through Western Eyes. It is a beautiful depiction of how sometimes we as Western readers rush past subtle details that we would never capture because of our cultural predisposition. But the idea of an older Jewish man running is totally and completely undignified. This is highly uncharacteristic that the father would run toward him, but it is fully picturesque of what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse eight. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we were still in our current situation warranting no redemption, and God made the first move. The idea, these, these songs that we sing about the reckless love of God, this is what we're talking about. It is totally undignified for the father to make the first move because he is not the one who made the first offense. He picks up and he runs toward the son. I mean, he's not just like at the front door ringing the, the, the ring thing continuously and everybody's going to ask Alexa, who's that at the front door? This isn't, this isn't, this isn't the guy who's even at the mailbox yet. You know, who's that out there? He's not. He's he's at the edge of the subdivision. Right. Tattered clothes, still smelling like pig, filled with mud and likely no shoes, because when he gets home, the father says, bring shoes and bring a robe. So we know that the, the dude's barefoot, like everything that he had to his name is completely gone. He's fresh out of the mud and the father makes the first move. This is an, a beautiful pictorial of God's love and a mind blowing uh, 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 just kind of illustration of what reconciliation looks like. And so it says that the say that again. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, good. I'm sorry. Hey, nobody. No, 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 no. I remember I opened the room up and said, if anybody says I'm going too fast, let me know. I thought we were I thought we had an engagement. All right. That's you. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. All right. So so reconciliation. Next point. Reconciliation flows out of six righteous responses. Reconciliation flows out of six righteous responses. And here they are plainly in the scripture, not made up by me. You ready? This is not preach craft. This is right here in the text. The father running, right? The father robing, the father placing a ring on him, replacing his shoes. And then, of course, there's two others, resurrection power, which you'll clearly see in a moment, and also rejoicing. I'm going to go through them slowly, so don't, if you didn't get a chance to write them. These six righteous responses that depict reconciliation in the passage, here they are. You ready, James? All right, so I've already kind of unpacked this idea of how beautiful and powerful it is to see the father running toward the son when he's not the one who needs redemption, when he's not the one who owes the apology, right? But it's the father who takes the initiative in running toward us. We must never forget that in our understanding of our own redemption, that it is the father who comes running toward us while we're still in our current state. Notice that the prodigal son doesn't get a chance to come home, go down in the basement, get in the shower, spray himself off, come up, sit at the dinner table and have everybody in awkward silence going, well, where you been? It is the father who runs toward him before he even gets in the neighborhood good, still dirty and stinky with the fresh reminder of his folly all over him. And the father runs. The second thing that happens is so amazing. Look at this. He says he run, he felt compassion on him, he ran, he embraced him, and he kissed him. He embraces him and he kisses him in his active stench, right? He hasn't bathed yet, right? And then he says the father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and he kissed him. 
And, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Listen, sin seems singular in the moment, but its impact is always seismic. Sin seems singular in the moment, but its impact is always seismic. Notice what the well, notice what reconciliation looks like. Notice what repentance really looks like. It says not only has sin been before the person who I directly sinned against, but it's also before heaven. Recognize that God, you saw this. It is impacting both my horizontal relationships with my father and it is also before heaven. Like real repentance recognizes all the directions in which my sin have impact. Is that, is that clear? When, when I only see my sin as impacting my fellow man, I just think perhaps an apology is in order. But when I see my sin as having been before God's eyes, as well as impacting my fellow man, now repentance is in order. Do you see that? OK, so then check this out. So you've got running. You've got the running of the father. So then he says, uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. However, in contrast, the father says to his servant, bring quickly the best robe. He didn't say bring a bucket. He didn't say bring a rag. He didn't say bring soap. He didn't say bring new fragrance. He says, bring the best robe. Did he? Is that what he said? Bring the best robe. This is a portrait, ladies and gentlemen, of what in the gospel and in theology we call what? Who said it? Imputation. This is taking the robe this is this is status that does not belong to the son by, by, by way of the son's own earning. He can't earn this robe. This is the father choosing to give him a robe. He didn't say bring me overalls or a towel or go in the basement and get some dirty laundry. He says bring not even he said, this is a fresh robe from the dry cleaner still in the plastic. He said bring the best robe and put it on him a robe. Again, not a cloak. Ladies and gentlemen, do you hear this? A robe. They didn't wear robes every single day. Everybody was just walking around in the shops, you know, with their robes on. So, so this is an imagery that the father says, no, I want you to recognize that you are received into full status. You are not a servant. You may not feel like you deserve a servant's treatment, but you deserve a royal son's treatment. This is imputation. This is the, the robing of the father. This is what reconciliation looks like from the father. He puts a robe on us. We are clothed in the son's righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. Remember, this is not some robe left in the son's closet prior to his departure, because according to the scriptures, he took everything that was his when he left and squandered it. If he did have a nice robe, he blew it on hookers. If I can speak so strongly, it says that later in the text that he he squandered everything he had on prostitutes. So I think I'm within rights to say this. I'm not just trying to again, I'm not just trying to be like Howard Stern of Brentford. So 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 this isn't his robe, except the father declared it to be his robe. Perhaps it was the father's own robe. So he says, bring him the best robe. So. These six glimpses of reconciliation, the father running, taking the initiative, the father robing. But then what else does the father do? do it does it says, but the father said to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger. Now, rings were not just jewelry in the uh, first century in the ancient Near East. 
A ring oftentimes would be used to make an impress into wax to seal up a letter as a signature of whose house a person was representative of. He wanted to make sure that the son understood, I'm not just letting you borrow my robe. You really are, once again, part of this family. Your, your, your reconciliation is authentic. You're back, and you're, you're really back. You're my son. That's what reconciliation says. It's not like this, this gradual, you've got to earn your way back to the table. We're just going to, you know, has anybody been in sales and you like sold on a draw? You know what a draw is? Like if you're on commission, it's like they front you a little cash until you really just kind of earn your way up to that number anyway. No, no, no. This is not a fronting. This is, he says, no, no, no. This really is your robe. This really is your family. This really is your ring. And just to prove it, every possible thing that I can show you that you are still my son, you are yet my son. Here it is. This is what reconciliation looks like. Let me know if I'm going to. I feel like I'm moving fast. I feel like it. We good? We good? All right. Thank you, Greg. Greg's the brakes. Greg's the brakes. Um, so the running of the father, the robing. Running to the son, the robing of the son, placing the ring on the son, which is the signature of relationship restored. And then, of course, there's something else he does. He replaces his shoes. Why does the Bible feel like we need that detail? The replacing of his shoes. The brother comes in barefoot. But then the Bible tells us elsewhere that when we are in Christ and we put on the whole armor of God, what do we put on our feet? The gospel of Peace. Let your feet be shot with the gospel of peace. In other words, if you ever thought that I'm just doing this once again as a facade, he's totally clothed and said, there is now peace between us. Let me fully clothe you. I'm clothing you in righteousness. I'm ringing you with a clear symbol of relationship. And I want to let you know that there is peace between us. Put some shoes on his feet. The Lord wants us to be totally outfitted in the reality. Even if we don't smell like it and look like it, the Lord says, this is how you look to me. Reconciliation flows out of six righteous responses from God. He runs toward us. He robes us. He rings us. He replaces our shoes, gives us he, our feet are shot with the gospel of peace. But there's something else that also happens. It says after he brings a robe, He says, then I want you to bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us celebrate this idea of killing an animal. We obviously know that within the context of a great Jewish family, as they would have killed a calf and ate, there would have been no doubt that they would have had to go to the same pen that they might have been keeping the the animals that were kept, the firstborn among many that they would have had reserved perhaps for an atonement feast. Now, I'm certain that they didn't use the Lord's lamb, but there's no doubt that they could have had something else they could have prepared. But here it is. The father chooses to prepare a fatted calf to kill on behalf of his son having returned. And I believe that it is fair without taking any exegetical liberties to believe that the Lord wants us to see in here some kind of emblem of the Lord's work in sacrificing his own son. Because later in the text, the scripture will say, my we are celebrating because my son, who was once dead, is now alive. Therefore, I believe we are looking at a pictorial of resurrection power. There is one portion of what must happen in our reconciliation that can only be appropriated through the sacrifice of the lamb. And it is Jesus Christ. One life is given 
in order that one life might be gained. That is the imagery that we see in the story of the prodigal son. This is the this is the move of the father toward those who need to be reconciled. And then, of course, there is rejoicing. He says, oh, oh, here it is. Bring the fatted calf. Let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Well, we all know what Jesus told us, that heaven would rejoice more over over one soul than it does over anything else. And so we see rejoicing in the father's house. And so there is running. There is rejoicing. Excuse me. There's running, robing, ringing, replacement of shoes, the resurrection power, and also rejoicing over uh, the one who has been brought back. What a beautiful image of how deeply the father feels about one who blew it all, messed up royally, destroyed everything in most despicable way. This is not some momentary mistake. This isn't someone saying a swear word down in the basement and their dad overheard it. Are you hearing me how, how big of a screw up this is? This is the, remember, at the opening story, the only way to get one's inheritance is to pretend as if the father is dead. So, so as I even went, got fancy and spoke a little Spanish, you guys remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he says, hey, tu esta muerto mi padre. You, you, it is like you are dead to me. Give me my inheritance. And then the father said, you're dead to me too, buddy. Because remember, he says now in the reconciliation, you, you are dead in your sins. Totally unresponsive. Is it, it is as if you don't even exist. Because the, the father uses the same language. But then there's more. There's more. Verses 25 through 30. Uh, James asked me about this last night. Rod, who do you think is the you know, main character in the story? Slow, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. But you know what happens when you say stuff to me at public. It works its way into messages. We, we've had you figured that out. <laughs> right. So, so here it is. <laughs> So so let's read verses 25 through 30 relatively slowly and pick up on some details. Now his older son was in the field and we came and drew near to the house. Now, James pointed this out and I love this point. He says, all right. Now, remember, this whole story is couched not only in a catalog of teaching about lost things. Remember, this is part of a triple a triple set of stories, uh, this kind of trifold brochure that Jesus is handing to Pharisees talking about a lost son, a lost sheep and a lost coin. And so here it is. Now he turns the corner and here's this, you know, the second son. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. There's, I mean, there's a full on party. There's a DJ has been rented. Right. And he called to one of his servants and he asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry uh, and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when your son of yours who came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, see where I got that from? Right. You killed a fatted calf for him. And you said to me and you said to him, son, you are all son. And then he says to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he is found. And so here it is. The Pharisees listen to this story who might feel that they have always been close to the father, never broke his commands. You remember when the apostle Paul outlined his resume over in the book of Colossians saying, don't have any confidence in the flesh. He says, "Lo, if you want to have some confidence in the flesh, let me show you some. And all of a sudden he pulls out his LinkedIn, right? And he goes, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? I was born on the eighth day. In other words, excuse me, I was born and my family circumcised me on the eighth day. In other words, my family was, was down with the program, right? Like circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, Concerning the law, I was, a, I was blameless. Well, no, so he says, concerning the law, I was, I, was, I, was, I was blameless. He says, also, I was a Pharisee. So not only did I keep all the rules, I was a gatekeeper for the rules. I became a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Check my references, right? I mean, just a full Pharisee LinkedIn page. He says, if somebody's got confidence on having gotten it right, it's me. But I consider all of that to be nothing in, in contrast to the surpassing knowledge and the beauty of Christ. This was Jesus. This, this, this is Paul defining all that he had fulfilled. In other words, the apostle Paul could rightfully say he is the second son. I've been with you the whole time and I never broke any one of your rules. And I demonstrated the highest levels of zeal and follow through when it comes to the Mosaic law. Like if anybody is really yours, dad, it's me. How can you celebrate this guy? So so Jesus gives this story. And here it is, the Pharisees and anybody else who's moving in in, in just way big self-righteousness gets a chance to see themselves in the picture. Because Jesus is now answering the question, why is it that this dude is always hanging out and having dinner with sinners? That's what he's really responding to, because they always want to accuse Jesus. Why do you hang out with sinners all the time? And so what he's doing is he's giving this pictorial of the, the, the sinners that I hang out with, like the Matthews and the other people like that, these are the prodigals who are coming in and heaven will celebrate. But here's you in the backyard here in the DJ and you can't stand it. And guess what? Guess what else is even more staggering about what Jesus is doing in this story concerning the relationship between the father and the prodigals that he's bringing into the kingdom and the sons who've already been there. To make it even more nasty, the prodigal is a son, not a prodigal servant. In other words, these guys have the same status as you. I consider them as my children. You notice that? I mean, there might be some self-serving satisfaction that a Pharisee might be able to have if they could look at that and go, well, he'll never be, he'll never have the full status that I have. But the father answered that in spades by giving him a robe, a ring, shoes, and a calf, and a DJ. So, what do we learn about self-righteousness in this in this picture? In verses 25 to 30, we see self-righteousness shows itself in this reaction. The father's love should be linked to my performance. That is exactly what the second son said to the father. I've been with you all this time and I never did any of those things. He want the, and, but, yeah, but he said, not only did I not do these things, but you've never given me a fatted calf and allowed me to throw a party with my friends. He completely forgot about his bar mitzvah. Because I'm pretty sure he had one. But anyway, the father's love should be linked to my performance. That's what self-righteousness says. Here's another thing that this self-righteousness does. Look clearly at the words of the second son. He has clearly cataloged all that the other brother has done. Now, what's interesting is remember this. 
This is this is not exegetical liberty, but this is historical um, assumption. Remember, the passage tells us that the brother went to a far away country. There's no cell. There's no FaceTime. There's no text. There's no email. How does the older brother know that the younger brother spent all of his goods on prostitutes? Who said that? Yes. How does he have all of that detail about how he spent unless he had unless he had been checking in? What is he doing? Bring me word on just how bad the situation has gotten. So he's fully aware. He can fully catalog all of the brother's sins. And that's exactly what self-righteousness does. Not only does it believe that the, the God's love should be linked to my performance, it also is able to, f- to see the faults of others and see them as we being way more obvious than our own. And then here's the, the coup de gras. Is that Latin? Somebody can somebody Google that. I don't know what that means, but it, it feels like it belongs here in the message. Um, finding the lost is not nearly as good as already being one of the found. Consider the second brother's words. The, the, the father is saying we are celebrating because this brother was dead and now he is alive he was lost and now he is found. And we don't know what the, what the second brother's face was looking like, but it's obvious that he also knows that the brother's found safe and sound. Now remember, he, he heard the music and dancing. He called for one of the servants and says, what's all this commotion? And he says, your father has, your brother has been found safe and sound. And it says, he didn't go, yes, my brother is safe. He goes, boo, I'm not going up to the party. Which means being one of the found is more cherished than being one of the lost who gets found. Does that make sense? That is one of the typifications of self-righteousness is that we in the church feel like our status and position is more noteworthy and better than those who are being found. We get so used to being the found that we lose the sensitivity for what it means to have to go and get those that are lost. And so um, the lost cause, the question is, who's the real lost cause in this case? I don't believe anybody is a lost cause. There is no one so depraved, so diminished uh, that they can't be found by the father, be it the first son or the second son, be it the prodigal one or be it the perfect son, if you want to call him that. Uh, Every one of us is somewhere on the prodigal spectrum. I would hope that we would use this message again as kind of a, a rubric for evaluating not only where we are, but Lord, when you see me drifting, that, that, that these words would stand up in us. Or as, a, as, as one of the, the epistles say, let the word of Christ live in you richly. I pray that this message would live in me richly. So when I am inevitably at some point drifting in my walk, this very message will stand up into me and speak to me and say, hey, we've seen this movie before and we already know how it ends. Here's the spoiler. Here's the spoiler. The father wants you to fellowship with him deeply and richly and fully. Be clothed in a way that you can't clothe yourself. Be robed in a way that you can't robe yourself. The father is running toward you, running toward you with his love. Amen.
So I'm gonna I'm gonna put a cap on the prodigal son. That is the end of that piece, uh, and then we're gonna. Yes, absolutely. No, I think what he's saying is that because you're a son, because if you're really in relationship with me, everything that I have as a father, it's, it's already yours. In other words, you don't have any loss. And while you're pointing out the loss and the low living of the, of the prodigal brother, everything that I have is already yours. In other words, if, if you wanted a fatted calf, you could kill it for yourself because all that I have is already yours. If you want a robe, that's one in your closet. You're already mine. In other words, longing for a level of acclaim and status that the father says, you already have, you're mine. You know, uh, you know, the Lord had already heaped on Israel a very high level of status and standing. They were his people like he was theirs and they were his like that. There was a it was a it was an incredible position to be one of God's people. But when they leveraged that position as an inoculation against the need to repent, that's when kind of their they the grace of God grew into this cloak of self-righteousness for them. You're welcome. You're welcome. So um, that closes the prodigal son portion. Um, And so you guys, do you guys need a break before I break into either for your vote? A small break. I'm going to take, I'm going to give us a small break. I'm going to take a sip of water. We're going to come back and either I'm going to roll the dice. No, 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 no. We'll cast lots. We'll cast lots and we'll either do we'll either do the paralyzed sinner or the perfect storm. You decide. All right, go to let's let's go break. Break. All right.